Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, tonight we're going to uh, just take one verse, but we're going to dissect it uh, about five different ways, and uh, because this verse is so potent and packed, turn to John chapter 1 as you normally do. In a second, we're going to read the verse, but let me tell you by way of introduction uh, how this verse by way of teaching makes me feel. Um, Have you ever tried to describe something that you have been to, you visited some other part of the country or the world, some natural wonder that was so beautiful or some structure built by mankind that was so beautiful and you try to come back and try to explain to people what it looked like and how many of you just fall short on that one, right? You, You fall short, you try. Now, I've been to Niagara Falls twice. Anyone ever been there? Yeah. Isn't that an amazing place to go to? If you, never get, if you get to go, go there, and by the way, when you go there and you're on the Canadian side and you eat or buy anything, remember to tell them, and I'm helping you now, you don't want to pay the local tax, all right? It's optional. And who knows where it goes, but you don't have to pay it. That's a free one. Tithe on that later, okay? But I've been there a couple times, and I've gone down in the Maid of the Mist, and I've gone all the way towards the waterfall, and I've gone behind the falls. It's an amazing thing. It's amazing. You get to stand right next to it as it's falling, as it's cascading down. But to try to describe it to somebody, raise your hand, you've been there, Jeff, you've been there. It's too hard, right? How can you tell somebody what this is like? You got to go there. The other thing, I've been fortunate enough to go to Israel four times. I've stood on the Temple Mount four different times. I've, how many know the Golden Dome, the Mosque of Omar and the Temple Mount? You cannot go in it anymore. But in 1985, the first time my wife and I went, we were allowed at that time to go into the Golden Dome. It was amazing. But to try to describe what it's like on the Temple Mount, come back home and say, this is what it's like, you just can't, it doesn't, you can't do it justice. It's, it's just magnificent. I've been to the top of Mount Whitney twice as a backpacker. Now, to sit there and describe to somebody what it's like standing 14,505, 6, 7, 8, 9, or 10, because it keeps rising, How, what that feels like and what it looks like and the view from there, it's just too hard to describe. You just, you feel inadequate as you give a description. Let me tell you, as I approach verse 14, I feel very inadequate. I feel like, how do I take such a potent, magnificent verse and try to give it teeth and try to give it application? But I'm going to try. I'm going to give it my best. I'm going to give you five different, uh, not slants, but truths from these verses. So John 1, verse 14. This is the only time you'll have to be at that spot. From here on out, we're going to be going all over the place. If you didn't get your cheat sheet, they were on the table as you walked in. So John 1, 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the magnificent verse now, as John writes. Because remember, in John 1.1, we saw the eternal God, who was before all things. Remember that? And then we saw in verse 3 of the same chapter, that Jesus, this word, the God-man, He created everything in the universe. So we go from the eternal God, now he's the creator. 
And then we moved to verses 6 and 7, and we saw John the Baptist. He's the culmination of all the prophets. So you have the eternal God before all things, then the creation of the universe and everything we know. Then we have this time of the prophets with John the Baptist. And now we come to verse 14, where the God-man, God comes and invades his creation. And that's a full picture or a quick picture of the, of the history of mankind up to the moment of Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh. We call that the incarnation, where God takes carne. He takes flesh. He takes meat. He takes a body. The infinite becomes finite. The invisible becomes visible. <clears throat> the word who never came to be came to be a human being. Is that incredible in and of itself or not? Any amens on that? Amen. Now, when I think about this, my mind quickly, and I think some of yours quickly, has to flash back to what we read every Christmas, what we study in the scriptures at your family. If you read these things before you open the presents, whatever you do, or if you're in the, in the Christmas Eve service, if you've ever been in one, it might, your mind should flash back to those verses. Here's what Isaiah said. You don't have to turn there. In Isaiah 7, 14, he says this. <clears throat> Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. First, he says, bear you a son. There's a human, Emmanuel, God with us. There's the God-man, right? Isaiah goes on. In chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah says this. For a child, there's the human part, will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So now you have a child, human, God, God, the God-man. The incarnation that Isaiah prophesied about. Can I give you one that I had forgotten about and in my devotional reading I caught it today? Can I give you that one? It's not in your cheat sheet. You want that or should I just move on? Yeah, I'll bet you want that, huh? Okay, now, you're never going to come back to John again. So turn to Matthew chapter 22, to your left. Three, three letters to your left. Matthew 22, just real quick. I just, I go, oh man, I, I forgot about this one. And then as I'm reading, I go, that's, that's such a cool thing. And this will help you maybe when you read this section next time in your devotional reading. But look at Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees and Jesus are, and of course the Pharisees are always coming to question Jesus. How many know that's a dumb move? Because the moment they start questioning him, what does he do to them? He questions them, does he not? It's a great move. And whenever anybody challenges you on your faith, question them. Question the evidence for what they believe. Watch this in verse 41 of Matthew 22. He says this, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Because they've already been going at it. He says, What do you think about the Christ? Meaning the Messiah. Whose son is he? Here's their answer. They said to him, the son of David, meaning a descendant of David. Here's Jesus' next statement. He said to them, then, how many remember the show Columbo? Remember Columbo? Can you, I think Jesus is like Columbo right here. Uh, uh, you know, one more question, you know. Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I... Put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
And I like verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Don't you just love that? Can you imagine the next time the Pharisees met? Go ask him this. No, you ask him. I'm not going to ask him. Now watch what's going on here. That's a really difficult question. What's going on here? They say that how is it that David, that the Messiah can be David's son, and yet David in the Psalms calls the Messiah his Lord. How is that? Because when David calls him Lord, he's God. When David is called, when he's David's son, he's man. He's the God-man. Did you catch that? Or do I need to say it again? Say it again? Okay. Say, really? I thought I was so... David calls him son. That means human, descendant of David. But then in the psalm, David calls him Lord. Lord, the Lord is the Lord. He's God. You see that? God-man. That's how the two work together in that statement. And that's how Jesus puts it all together. Okay, if you didn't get it the second time, uh, talk to somebody else later. Okay, and you get that one. Okay, now, the incarnation. Let me give you some application of the God-man. God come and take in human form. I think I've already said this before, but it's worth saying again and again and again and again. How many of you, like me, have struggled with personal insecurity? Come on, raise your hand. Just be honest. Okay, the rest of you have always been secure all your life. Okay, good. You heard my, the series on cycle breaker, cycle maker, a lot of insecurity in my life. Uh, my 20s and 30s, early 40s, full of insecurity. It started to, you know, as I worked through things, started to get rid of it. But here's something I want you to take specifically with Jesus being the God-man. <clears throat> Why do we believe that humans, you are God's highest creation? One of the reasons is that you and I are made of the composition that God can inhabit. Did you hear what I said? You and I are made of a composition that God can inhabit. Now, will the Antichrist be a copycat of that? Will Satan send one of the worst demons in history to inhabit a man in the future of the planet? Say yes. Yes. But you and I are made of the composition that God can inhabit. That makes you God's highest creation. Once you start to understand that, you start to understand your importance, your value, your security, your identity. All those things follow suit. Now watch this. Turn to Psalm chapter 8, okay? Old Testament Psalm chapter 8. This is a real good one for you too. Psalm 8. <clears throat> now, when you're there, say I'm there. Okay, good. Psalm 8, look at verses 3 through 5. It says this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained. What is man? And the word man there means frail or fallen man. What is man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower. Or, or oh, sorry, I jumped. What is man that you thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Here's what he's saying. Oh, let me back up. Evolutionary scientists say that you and I are just, you know, you look at the evolutionary tree, which they have no intermediate state species, but you and I are just a little bit above the apes. Don't they teach us that? God says incorrect. The correct way to look at it is you and I are just a little bit below God. That's what he's saying right there. We're not a little bit above apes. We're a little bit below God. And when you start to understand that about yourself, 
and who you are and that, oh, that only human beings God can inhabit then, man, you begin to understand who you are and nobody can shake who you are. Now, I gave you a question. Did you notice last week on your cheat sheet, anybody notice the question? Did anybody read the question at the end? Does anybody listen to anything I say any Sunday? I'm just joking. The question at the end was, if someone was to ask you, come on, how can God become a man? How is that possible? And I asked you to think about it because I'll try to explain it. Let me give you my answer. I don't know. But here's what I would say. I would pin it back on them and say, explain to me what, what a conscience is. And they'll start to tell you, well, a, a conscience does this, does... No, I didn't ask you what it does. I asked you what it is. You know nobody knows? By the way, on a side note, the, the new science atheists, they tell you, you don't have a mind anymore. You only have a brain. Do you know that's what they're saying? You just have cells bouncing around your head. And that's how your, your decisions come from. Who you chose to be in relationship with, love, it's just cells bouncing around, that's all it is. How pathetic is that, huh? Man, that's terrible. Now, so they say, I know what it is. No, no, tell me what it is. Then I, then I would say, I'll give you an easier one. Tell me what gravity is. Oh, well, it does this. No, I didn't ask you what it does. I said, tell me what it is. You know no one can tell you? If you want to go further, ask them what energy is. They'll say, oh, it does. no, 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 tell me what it does. Tell me what it is. No one can tell you what energy, gravity, or conscience. Nobody can tell you what it is, but they can tell you the effects of it. Then I would say this. Look, I can't explain to you how God could become a man. I can't. But I can tell you the effects of it. I can tell you that on August 12, 1979, when I put my faith in Jesus and I said that prayer, and I was as heathen, sinner as it gets into every wrong thing there was, when I came up from my knee and from that prayer, everything was different. That the Spirit of God came into my life, and here were the effects of it. The effects of the God-man who came down and went to that cross and died for me and was buried and rose from the dead. I can tell you that, but I can't tell you how he became that, but I can sure tell you the effects of it in my life. And that's called our testimony, is it not? You should be able to rip off your testimony so fast. Now, let me give you another application on that. You ready for another one? Let me spin it around. Now, in our day, the, you know, naturalism, they say there's nothing supernatural. It's all natural. It's just, it's just the physical realm. In our day, it's hard for people to believe that and believe in deity, like there's a God, right? In their day, it was reversed. In their day, they believed in God, but they found it hard to believe that God could become a human. It's reversed. Now, that brings up an interesting thing because in that day, and this now will open your eyes when you read the New Testament to certain things, in that day there was a certain kind of um, false teaching called uh, Gnosticism. Anyone ever heard of Gnosticism? They're the Gnostics, not agnostics, that's different. Gnostics, what a Gnostic believed was basically this. <clears throat> They believed that God, Jesus was not tangible, that he was kind of a specter or a ghost and a spirit. They believed he only gave the appearance of eating or going to the bathroom or whatever else, but he was actually a ghost. That's what they believed, that he was just a specter, just a ghost. Now watch this 
That will make more sense for you now as you read certain statements. Turn to 1 John, way to the right of your Bible, way to the right. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Now watch now as you see why some things are written because there are reasons behind things that are written. Now when you're in 1 John chapter 4, say, I'm there. Okay. I still hear pages rustling. I still, I like that. I like Bibles. Now watch verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Here's, he's going to give you one of the tests. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here's a big test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus uh, is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Did you catch it? Now does it make sense? He's combating a certain false teaching that's invading the New Testament church, that Jesus just came as a spirit. But he said, whoa, 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 if somebody says that to you, uh uh-uh, they're wrong. That's not the spirit of God. So we see the the incarnation where God becomes man, the God-man. And by the way, remember when Thomas, whom we call a doubter, but I don't know so much he's a doubter, but remember what Jesus does because Thomas missed a church service when Jesus showed up earlier? Anyone remember that? He did miss the church service. He missed it. And so, and, and so he says, unless I see with my own eyes and touch me. And Jesus says, hey, come here, talk. touch me. Put your hand. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I do. That's another little thing in there as in the future combating this Gnostic idea that's going to invade the church. Now, let's move on. The word became flesh and then John says, and dwelt among us. <clears throat> now, How does that apply and what can we draw from and dwelt among us? Some of you camp, right? Say, yeah, some make, I don't know, just pretend you do, I don't know. Some, but some of you, or let's just say some people outside of this group, you you go camping and you haul the big trailer, right? You got the big bed in there, flat screen TV, you got the shower, man, you got the kitchen there because you want to get back to nature away from modern conveniences. American campers. <laughs> I backpack. I don't camp. I, I don't camp. Um, I backpack. I bring a three-man dome or a two-man. Now I'm to a two-man tent. And the older I get, I got to buy lighter weight because I can't carry as much and it costs way more money. It's terrible growing older. Okay. Amen, huh? <laughs> now, <clears throat> when it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, The word dwelt, it literally means he pitched his tabernacle, he pitched his tent, tented among us. Jesus came and tented among us. I tent when I go backpacking for two days. Jesus tented for 33 years. He took on a body, a tent. It's a temporary confinement. Now, I'm going to give you an application that you must use in love, all right? <clears throat> people today, and it's, it's our culture now, and people say, you hear people say, well, I'm not comfortable in my body. You've heard that one before, right? I'm, I'm not a guy, I'm a girl. 
I'm not a girl, I'm a guy. Or I'm, I'm both. I'm just not comfortable with my body, so you don't know what it feels like, or this and that. And okay, <clears throat> question. Here's the question I just asked. In love, do you think God came down, took on a human body, and God felt comfortable in that body with every temptation pulling at him at all times? Do you think he felt comfortable? I don't think so. I think it felt as foreign as foreign gets. And yet, did the God in that body, did he ever sin and go with the temptations? He never did. Did you hear, you hear what I'm telling you? This is a great practical response when people give you things like that. I don't feel comfortable in my body. So well, let's talk about Jesus. Because he was pulled by every temptation in that body, and it didn't feel right. And he dwelt in that body. But you always share it in love. In love. Okay, now it moves on. We dwelt among us, and then John says in verse 14, we beheld his glory. Now, we're going to break this into two sections. We saw his glory. First, let's talk about we saw, all right? That's an important statement in John 1.14 because it's telling you that the disciples are eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Now, I've told you in times past that someone's going to tell you yeah, but that's the Gospels, and that's the disciples, and they're biased, and you can't trust them. They're going to tell you stuff like that, which is incorrect, but they're going to tell you that. So what I would do in that moment is this. I'd say, well, let's look at someone outside the Gospels, and who would that be? Am I talking about him a lot? Paul. Let's look at someone outside the Gospels to see about this eyewitness stuff. Turn to Galatians, to your left now from 1 John, Galatians chapter 1. Now watch this. I shared this about three years ago, four years ago. I think on, our, on our Easter Sunday. Um, but, but let me show you something here. So we're, we're going to go outside the Gospels. Let's look at this guy, Paul, whom even the skeptic and atheist New Testament scholars, they're okay with this guy, Paul. <clears throat> look at verse 15 of Galatians 1. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to draw something out very important. But when God... This is Paul writing. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then... Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted, say acquainted, with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. Now, I'm going to give you some, something really in, something to try to remember, but then I'll get back to this whole idea we saw. Paul spends three years out there in the Arabian desert contemplating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it affects he contemplated. That's why we get so much great New Testament writing. He's thinking about it. All the scholars that are scholars, well, <clears throat> let, me, let me, keep your finger, look at chapter 2, verse 1 before I say this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, 
but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So, now, add the years up. 14 years there, back up, and then three more years. How much is that? That's 17. Now, most Bible scholars will tell you that Paul had, the, had Jesus appeared to him in the resurrection within two years after the resurrection, actual resurrection, that Jesus appeared to Paul. Now, you take, say, two years. You could even go three, but you take three. Let's say three years. Then you add three years. Then you add 14 years. How many years is that moment in chapter 2 after the resurrection? It would be like 20 years. How many of you know from a historical standpoint how close that is to the actual event? That's incredibly close. 20 years after the fact, Paul is writing about these things. And I always use the Alexander the Great illustration. Remember that? That Alexander the Great, do, were there contemporary writers who lived at his time? Yes. Do we have any of the writings? No. What we have were written 350 years after Alexander the Great. But people take that as, oh yeah, we have writings 20 years after the resurrection, guys, of a man who's experienced it within two years, maybe three years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let me get back to the issue I want to point out here. We saw eyewitnesses. Paul, look back at chapter 1 and verse 18. Remember what word I told you to say out loud? No, not Saul, Paul. And you're on my staff, but anyway. <clears throat> okay. Acquainted. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become what? Acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter. <clears throat> now, how many of you, like, you're like me, when there's a hurricane bearing down on the southeastern part of the United States and everybody's left, how many of you like to turn on the Weather Channel? Anybody like me do that? I know you do, Steve. I know you do. Okay. I love that. You know why? Because there's always that reporter, huh? <laughs> they have to be crazy. And then the poor cameramen, they want to get paid, so they're out there too. And they're out there like, <laughs> it's, you know, and they're holding on to a pole, their body sideways, and, you know, and it's 30 miles off the coast, and, it's just, and, and I'm going, I'm just waiting to see when they blow away. And that's really, that's what I watch it for, because I think he's going to blow away, you know. The poor guy's out there. Now, you and I are watching this event from our cozy living room a thousand, two thousand miles away, right? But the person, the reporter, right there on the coast, either on Louisiana or Mississippi or Alabama or the Florida Panhandle, they're right there. They're there. They are an eye. They're an eyewitness. They're an eyewitness. When Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, and he says, to become acquainted with Cephas, the word acquainted, the greatest Greek theologians say the word acquainted is the Greek word, um, historiasi, and guess what it means? Eyewitness. He says, I went with the other eyewitnesses. I wanted to talk to the other people who saw the resurrected Christ. Now, what does that tell you also? He's also affirming that the disciples in the Gospels also were eyewitnesses, is he not? And he's telling you that he himself is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Is that amazing or what? That's what the guy's saying right there. Now, not only did we see, he says, but we saw his glory, John 1.14 goes on to say. Now, when you think 
John, the writer, says, we saw his glory. Where does your mind flip back to in the Gospels? Anybody think where your mind flips to? Mine goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember what happens up there? He takes Peter, James, and John up to, we don't know if it's Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor, some mountain up there. But, and they're there, and what do they see? Jesus, remember him? What happens in that place? His face shines like the sun. His clothing becomes the brightest light possible. And then the cloud comes down. And the voice from God the Father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's an important statement, side note, because remember the guys after it all happened says, let us build a tabernacle, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Remember that in that same sequence? Well, Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets, and God the Father says, would you guys shut up? Jesus is here, the God-man. Listen to him now, okay? That's what's going on in a really quick theological way, okay, in that moment. right? Now, I want you to think about this as we put it all together. Jesus is there. A cloud comes down. God the Father, a cloud comes down. That's the glory of God, Shekinah. Back up. Jesus dwelt among us. Dwelt means what again? Tented. So the tent is there. He's tented, and the cloud comes down. Does that bring up a picture for anybody? The tent is there and the cloud comes down. Does that bring up an image for anybody? Okay, I'm going to help you because you don't know what I'm talking about. Turn to Exodus chapter 40. Watch this. I really like this stuff. I don't know if you can tell. Now watch Exodus 40. Now watch, 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 watch. Remember, the cloud comes down and the tent is there. Now watch... Exodus 40, I'm going to read 34 to 38. This is the Old Testament, traveling to the desert. They built the tabernacle, which is a big tent. Then the cloud covered the tent. Oh, cloud and tent again. Interesting. Of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the cloud coming down is the glory, is the kind of glory of God. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journey, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle, on the tent, by day, and there was a fire by night in the sight of all Israel. You see the picture? They set up the tent, the tabernacle. When they set it up, the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God would come down, the glory. And Moses would go and communicate with God. What is John showing us in John 1.14? Jesus tented, and we beheld his glory, the tent and the glory of God. You see it right there in the God-man. Now, what is that telling to the early church and the Jewish Christians, uh, early church Jewish Christians? He's saying this, that Jesus in your midst is the proof. It's the proof that Jehovah God was in Israel's midst again. The Shekinah glory was here. And that's the evidence, just like in the wilderness wanderings, that God was now in our midst again. Is that wild or what? I think that's a great thing. I don't know if you got excited or not, but I did. Okay, now, let's move on. Then he says, in John 1, 14, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and... Real quickly, unbegotten. 
Begotten simply means it's the idea of two beings of the same nature. God, the Father, and Jesus are two persons, same nature. That's all that's about. Now, <clears throat> grace and truth. Jesus, the God-man, enters his creation. He comes. He's got to stoop down to us because we're sinners and we can't come to him. Correct? Correct? It's an impossibility. <clears throat> if there's no grace, then it's truth and judgment, is it not? And that's all it is. But because of grace, God favors me, a stinker, a sinner. He stooped down to save his creation. So um, about two weeks ago, I'm, I'm at, I go to study. You guys know I study at a coffee shop. If you know where that's at, never tell anybody because then people show up there want to talk to me the whole time, <laughs> ask me questions and stuff, and then I just show them your phone number and picture. I said, call them. But I'm standing there, and there's a, a lady in front of me, and she wants to buy a cup of coffee. But she's got a $100 bill only. And she, I found out later she only wanted to break the $100 bill to buy that. And they said, we can't break the $100 bill. Can't do it. You know, they're gonna, they're, people aren't going to do that these days. And it's becoming a little bit of a tension moment. When they won't give it, she goes, well, then give me coffee then, meaning for free. And uh, so I walked up, and I said, I'll pay for her coffee. Now, let me back up and say, I walked up to see what she ordered, just in case. Because right? <laughs> you know, I'm not a fool, all right? Because if she ordered like 40 bucks worth, well, <laughs> you're paying for that, sister, not me. Okay. But it was three-something, all right? So I said, okay, Jimmy can handle that. So I said, I'll pay for your coffee. Oh, no, you don't have to do it. I go, I know I don't have to do that. I just, let me just do it for you. Let me just pay for you. But I got money. I know you got money. I see the $100 bill. I go, and I said, let me just bless you. And I always give him my line. I go, we're blessed to be a blessing. You better get that in your life. You're blessed to be a blessing. You have what you have to bless and the moment you forget that, the fountain stops. Never forget that. You're blessed to be a blessing. I said, let me just bless you. We're blessed to be a blessing. Oh, no. She, she, she's, she's, she's debating with me. Why is she debating with me until she finally accepts? Why is she doing that? It's very awkward to accept something for nothing, huh? We just want to pay for stuff all the time. I don't know if you were standing there, Gilbert, when I performed the wedding at the very end when the one guy came up to me. I don't know if you were there. Okay, I'm going to share that now. Cause. So I used to have a real hard time accepting stuff. I always felt like I had to earn it. So after I performed the wedding out there, this one gentleman comes up to me, and he's a friend of the groom, and he says, would you accept more money for this? I go, yeah, I would. It was in Vegas, so I had to go, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> Put it on red. No, I'm just joking. Okay. Um, so, and he hands me, he hands me $100, actually. Now, there was a time when I was at, no, no, I just, I felt like I had to earn everything. I couldn't accept things. I got over that about 20 years ago. 
Thank God, okay? Thank God. But that's our problem, isn't it? When it comes to grace, it's very hard to just feel like, no, God just wants to do that. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's just the grace of God, isn't it? Isn't it? Now, let me give you the last applications for tonight from grace and truth. He stoops down grace to pay for our sins. And he's full of grace and truth. Guys, he's not 50% grace and 50% truth. He's full, 100% grace and 100% truth. Never forget that. He's not carved out into percentages. Everything that he is, he's 100% of that. Okay? But grace and truth got to go together. If you and I are only truth without grace, and I've got a lot of experience. I wish I would have not been this way years ago, but I was in the formative years of my faith. I'm a John the Baptist, prophet-motivated type. It's black and white. Get it right or get out. That's the way, that's the way my mind thinks. But I had to get over that because that's not the way Jesus operates. If we are only truth, then we will be the onboard terrorist in the lobby every Sunday. We will look for people that we think they're sinning and we are going to feel like it's our duty to go tell them what they need to fix. We are going to drive people away and we will be just like the angry Pharisees that always confronted Jesus. Because all we have is truth. And I'm going to tell you the truth. That's what I'm going to tell you. What a truth-only person doesn't realize and what I didn't realize is how spiritually immature I was. I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I thought, man, this I got to tell people. Here's what you got to understand in a church. For a healthy church to operate, you got to understand that everybody's at a different place in their spiritual journey. Are they not? Yeah. Some of us are white belt Christians. You know my illustration, right? Some of us are purple belt Christians. Some of us are green belt Christians. Some of us are advanced green belt Christians. Some of us are blue belt Christians. Some of us are brown belt Christians. Some of us are at the highest level brown belt Christians. Some of us are black belt Christians. Some of us are 10th degree black belt Christians. We're all in different places. But you don't go and try to make a white belt Christian a black belt Christian in one fell swoop in the lobby, okay? You let them grow. You let them grow. You, you help them along. See, in Matthew 23, when Jesus is laying out the Pharisees, the famous chapter where he keeps starting every verse off with, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember that? I love that chapter. <laughs> but, but then one of them, he says this, For you travel about on sea and land to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Is that pretty heavy, right? He's saying, look, you know what you do. You go after people, win them over, and then you make them like you. Just a mean, angry, cuss, truth-only Christian. It's not what you want to be. It's not what you want to be. It destroys churches. You'll never make Jesus' disciples that way. Grace. But grace and truth. Now, if you're only a truth, um, um, if you're only a, a grace person and no truth, guess what? Oh, 
don't worry about your sin. It's okay if you keep doing it. No. You'll let everything go by. If I'm just a grace person, I'll never stand up here and say abortion is sin. I'll never say same-sex marriage is sin. I'll never say the practice of homosexuality is sin. I'll never say that because I'm just a grace-only person. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Let me give you a sidebar, and let me come with my closing. Because I forgot to say this in the truth part. And I, I shared this about a year ago, and hopefully it helps somebody here. It took me a long time to finally realize I could operate this way. I think, Dave, you and I had that conversation a few weeks back. I said, it's okay to do this. Remember that conversation? Um, I, I know it's hard to believe, but some people make appointments with me just to come and correct me and tell me where we're doing things wrong. I know it's shocking for you to hear that, but trust me, ministry is fun. No, small parts of it are no fun, but most of it is the greatest gig in the world. I came to realize just a few years ago, maybe three years ago, I go, why do I let these people do this? I always thought I had to be really like grace and nice, and I'm nice to them. But I started to realize they only come to talk to me when they want to correct me. They never come and say, hey, can I take you out for coffee just see how you're doing? Or Jim, where can I come and serve in the church? How can, we, how can I help? I've been sitting here and I feel like it's just wrong for me. We're gonna, they don't come and tell me that. See, they build zero relationship with me at all. Love is the relationship part. If I don't have a relationship with somebody, I have no, no, uh, I have no credibility to speak truth in their life. So when somebody comes in to correct me and they just come in to correct me, I just go, oh, okay, thank you. And as soon as they leave, out of sight, out of my mind, you will have no authority over me. I, I don't even feel bad because you built no relationship with me. Grace and truth. Now I said that for some of you who are allowing people like that to come in your life and keep telling you stuff. No. No. You can stand firm in your faith. Now grace and truth. Let me finish with this. Later on <clears throat> in John, when we get there in about seven years, chapter eight, some of you don't know how slow I move through the scripture, so it's okay, right? There's that moment when uh, they bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus, right? And, and, the, and the people dragging her along, they don't care about her. They, they could care less about her. They just want to use her as a pawn to try to trap Jesus. And they throw her down. You know the story. And, you know, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act. And the law of Moses says, back to the law again, the law, the law of Moses says, she deserves to be stoned. But what do you say? And what does Jesus do? <laughs> calmly. Calm, they're holding rocks. Calmly. Goes down in the dirt, starts writing in the, in the dirt there. And then they get mad. He's not even listening to us. They, I said, this woman deserves to be stoned. What do you say? And they're screaming. And he stands up. And he says, he who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. Can you imagine if all the people in media and in politics and everywhere else lived by that? They wouldn't even have a word to say because they're such hypocrites. Jim, you're cynical. The older I get, I'm more cynical about government and, 
and journalism. I just am. I just am. And pray for me, okay? But that's where I'm going. But then they leave. They drop the rocks and they leave. And he helps the woman up. In and of itself, him touching that woman's a big deal because she's adultery. That's unclean. He would care less because you cannot affect the God man. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Nobody. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Grace. Go and sin no more. Truth. Did you see it? Neither do I condemn you. Grace. But go and sin no more. Truth. You got to have them both. You got to have them both. And Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If we operate that way, we're going to reach a lot more people for Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the study tonight. Thank you for your word, God, that compels us to live in better ways than we're living now. I pray these truths, God, they impact us and they sit in us. That we're able to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls, as your half-brother James wrote. And so, God, tonight, let's go home and let's enjoy and let's have peace and joy in our homes and live for you, God. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.